Hello, everyone. I'm Kelly Willis-Green, and this is Serious Coin, the podcast where we have rich conversations about wealth. Today, I'm talking about giving money away and how to move beyond just check writing to smarter, strategic philanthropy where we can really make a difference with our donations. This is something that I've been working on for a while now, and I know many people I speak to are also interested in how to become more proficient in their charitable giving and to gain more satisfaction knowing your dollars are having impact. And in my experience, even when you have an established practice of giving, when the dollars get bigger, it gets harder to decide where to allocate them and how to measure success. I think it was actually Warren Buffett who said, giving money away is easy. Giving money away well is fiendishly difficult. Even Elon Musk has admitted it's hard to give money away effectively if you're concerned about outcomes rather than just the optics of looking good. So know that you are in good company if you don't know how to do this as well as you would like. And today we're going to learn together. And we have a great resource in my guest, somebody who's on the front lines of advising some of the largest, most forward-thinking philanthropic families in the world. She's super interesting. Her name is Danielle Aristian York. And Danielle is president and executive director of 2164, which is a New York-based nonprofit that works with families across generations, young and old, bringing them together to help them define how they want to give and serve together. And if you're wondering about the name, it speaks to the work they do across these generations, 21 being at one end, the time when young people come of age, and 64, an age when people are thinking harder about their legacies. So whatever your level of giving, there's tons that we can learn from these wealthy 2164 families because they've dealt with the big questions. Things like how are we going to focus our giving and how involved do we want to be and can we be with the organizations we're dealing with and the issues that we're funding? And how can we get our kids to take more of an interest? I know that's something that weighs on the minds of a lot of parents. Well, Danielle deals with all of these issues every day before lunch. I think you'll be inspired by what she has to say. So have a listen. There is oftentimes a tipping point or a choice to be made around how we spend our dollars or we spend our time. Um, Many families who have been giving for many generations, folks who are in their third and fourth generation are giving together, are oftentimes holding a tension between tradition, how it's always been done here, and impact what the world needs today and how we do that. Folks who are newer to money, what I hear them saying, you know, what they are talking about is impact getting stuff done. I've always gotten stuff done. I sold my first company when I was 32. I know how to get stuff done versus connection. How do I involve others in this? Because I know how to get stuff done. So newer families sort of thinking about impact versus connection um, and the tension there and families for multiple generations balancing traditional ways of doing things in culture with impact. That's so interesting. And I can see how their respective challenges would be very different. I want to explore that further, but first, tell me a little bit about the families that you work with. What do they have in common? And besides the fact that they're all very well off and they have this interest in philanthropy, but what do they share? Well, I'll I'll define well off because I think well off means a lot of different things to a lot of people. Um, you know, I think some of the families we work with are multi billion dollar families, right? They have tons and tons of money, and so and sort of operate with different levels of sophistication and interest in philanthropy and, and enterprise and beyond. And some of the families we work with are using donor advised funds, um, and they don't have a staff foundation. So I would say financially, we sort of don't create 
there's not a uniformity in the way that we're working with families. I think the reason you'd hire 2164 and what they hold in common is they understand that identity really matters. Mm-hmm. Um, so most of the families we work with have had some sort of, at some point, somebody made a lot of money, whether it was in the past 10 years or was 100 years ago. And what what they have been figuring out or how they were counseled may have led them to first Maybe they were working tactically. So let's give some of this money away and get some tax write-offs. We're going to give back to church and school and community. Be good citizens. Be good corporate citizens. Some of them have thought strategically and they went to a conference or they read a paper, you know, that came out of Stanford or across the river where I am here in Boston that, you know, MIT put out um, or, or Harvard put out about, you know, a strategy someone should use and, and they tried on somebody else's strategy. And at the end of the day, the, the tactics and the strategy aren't satisfying or they're not enduring. There's some sort of challenge in what people come back to and what they come to us with is they're trying to figure out their identity. So who am I and how do I express that philanthropically? Or how do I express that in, in sort of a collective way? And then I think the additional question they're asking is who are we? So if Danielle is an independent actor, what I might do with money independently uh, without regard to other people in my family might be different than if I'm saying, let's make this decision together. And then for many multi-generational families, they have the experience of the young people pulling up the chairs to the table, or they don't want to pull the chairs to the table because there is no collective identity. So we don't know how to make decisions together. We don't have something that is uh, that we've all agreed to. Um, either we've inherited a legacy or an identity or... Um, or there's three or four different people's identities that we're trying to negotiate here, and it becomes uncomfortable. Right. And that, that leads to, I want to paint a couple of scenarios, two different scenarios. And one is that I saw very commonly during my career in wealth management, and that's typically, let's just say there's a founder, a wealth creator, say late 60s, early 70s, and becomes very interested in philanthropy. It's an age where you often start thinking about your legacy. They now have more time, more money. Mm. They set up a private foundation or maybe a DAF, um, and they really embrace philanthropy, and they want to involve their kids, who are now adults themselves. their 20s, 30s, maybe even 40s, maybe have kids of their own. And they set aside a certain amount of money and invite participation, maybe ideas of how the money is going to be given from the kids. And what they tell me is it's like crickets. Right. <laughs> yeah. The kids just aren't that interested. So the question I got asked is how do I involve my kids, my adult kids in philanthropy? Yes. What you're describing is it's a super familiar paradigm and one that we are also often asked and engaged to help work on. Um, there is the question that I ask back is how come? Right. And and so what we do is we lead a process that helps people unpack that question. I want to say there isn't one answer to why the kids aren't coming. Um, but um, what I know for sure is that when families love each other and they t- want to take care of their relationships, sometimes they will make choices about how much they engage in terms of extracurricular activities to, to preserve relationships. So I care so much about my mom or my dad or my parents. And they care so much about philanthropy, but I have a different idea about things. I'm not sure that I want that they really want what I have to offer. So I'm just going to to stay quiet. Is one thing that we hear sometimes. Second thing we hear is they keep asking me to come 
to the philanthropy meeting, but it's held on Tuesdays in person in Salt Lake City. I live in New York City. I'm raising four children. I run a nonprofit. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, my partner it has a big travel job. I'm not, I don't have capacity. And, um, and I think one of the third and very typical scenarios is you want me to come, but you're not clear about what role I can play. You're very good at giving your money away. Why do you need my help? Why would you want to do this together? So there's no clear role or purpose for shared activities or um, or that or clarity that this is an on-ramp into something that will ha- that has future implications. So the question we begin with, and oftentimes when I get calls from those matriarchs and patriarchs, is to say, well, why do you want your kids involved? And do they need to be involved? Sort of to look at both sides of the coin. Um, social change involves other people beyond your family. And so the balance between your family and the change you want to make in the world is an important one to investigate in terms of efficacy and purpose. What are you really trying to do and what is most important? Uh, you said a, a number of different things there that I, I want to come back to. But if we go to scenario two, this is more uh, multi-generational situation. So as you mentioned, this is maybe a family that has an established pattern of giving. They have a foundation, multi-generation. And really the task here is to engage and transition and transfer to the next generation. If you think of both of those scenarios in business terms, the first one is like a startup, right? It's a new venture and you're recruiting your family members to help you build this and drive forward. The second is an established and thriving business, in quotes, and the task is leadership succession to that next generation who will continue to ensure that it's a thriving organization, but also to grow it in, in their own mold to a certain extent. And so I wonder what the issues are that you run into with families specifically in that scenario where they transition to the next generation. I really like the way you use the metaphor around business here. You know, what comes to mind for me when somebody talks about a business is that the business itself has an identity. Um, The business has outcomes. The business is either deemed successful or not successful. And I oftentimes think that that's what's missing when people are thinking about philanthropy. But what is the identity of this communal organization that we all have roles on? Because what, what gets confusing is that this is my dad's thing or my great grandfather's thing that then my dad was doing because he because he knew my great grandfather he was his grandfather but i didn't know my great grandfather and they give to all the arts organizations in a city that i don't live in and there's i i think that we should really give to you know race equity how are we thinking about um how are we thinking about third world countries and women and girls so what happens is that there's no role for me because it's somebody else's thing somebody has been carrying a legacy down rather than reshaping something that we can all lead. Mm -hmm. So if we put our, you know, HBR hat on our Harvard Business Review hat, and we use this as a case study, you know, we would say the biggest threat to this business is that it doesn't have clear leadership roles. There is no, there, there is no accountability for what success looked like. And there isn't a way to keep this, um, market appropriate. We are instead doing things that people did 200 years ago. That is the task. And so then it becomes really hard to recruit new talent to a 200-year-old company that may no longer be relevant. And I think that that is one of the paradigms. So like 
all the good business people out there who are listening to your podcast, like let's think about philanthropy in terms of like any other enterprise. How do you keep it relevant? How do you set, make metrics and goals? And how do you field a great team? Just because we're related to each other doesn't mean that we're the best team. Um, and again, being able to make sure that we are meeting the needs of today, that we are, we are succeeding. Um, and that our mission is evergreen or that we have permission to, to make it anew so we continue to be useful. I'm really liking this analogy of philanthropy and business in terms of both having an identity and a purpose that drives strategy. And for these leading philanthropic families, Danielle says that by getting clear on their purpose, they're better able to navigate a constantly changing world and across successive generations. She gave a great example of a really bold move the current generation of the Rockefeller family made in their private foundation, the Rockefeller Brothers Fund. If you think about the Rockefellers, right, the Rockefellers made their money in standard oil, right? So um, if we think about non-renewable energies, um, this was the way that the Rockefellers made their money. Um, the Rockefellers Brothers Fund has been operating for um, decades or hundreds of years at this point. And what um, uh, the next generation and, and the current Rockefeller family decided to do was divest the endowment of the Rockefeller Brothers Fund from oil and gas. They made a tremendous pivot from the resource that created the wealth to divesting in that resource in order to stay true to the mission of the family. But what the Rockefeller family, I think, has done really well is sort of institutionalized an investigation of purpose. Why do we do this work? Why do we do it together? How might we do some work separately from one another? Well, I, I can imagine that wasn't somebody's shower idea. That must have taken a lot of really intense discussion at the boardroom table. But um, let's come back to your earlier comments about the self-made entrepreneur philanthropist who you said is, you know, focused on impact, who knows how to get things done. And there's just been an astonishing amount of wealth created in this last decade. And many of these entrepreneurs are using their business skills to bring that energy to drive social change. And I would think that that would really be shaking things up in the staid world of philanthropy. Yeah. I mean, I think I think people are looking, taking a hard look at philanthropy and the field itself, I think, is taking um, a healthy amount of critique right now for a number of reasons. You know, the wealth gap in this country is tremendous and the amount of resources that are that are sort of in the hands of a small group of people is one of the things I think a lot of people in philanthropy and outside of philanthropy are saying is this going to make the social change that it intends to um, and so I think a healthy dose of criticism is always good for any group um, in terms of bringing skills to this work and transferable skills there are so many transferable skills that can be offered in terms of social change but um, but running a business, um, I think, has, uh, you know, there, there are great transferability skills, but there's also some Achilles heels. Social change is different than making a product that the market wants. And that's what philanthropy is looking for. So sort of market-oriented approach to building something in entrepreneurialism versus social change, I think, are very different constructs. And are you having to educate your clients about that? I think actually um, there are many folks who are working on that. Um, we do some of that work. We actually partner with an organization called the Philanthropy Workshop, and we offer something called the Gen Impact Accelerator. That program, I think, really helps people think about some of the skills that are required for listening, 
for asking good questions, for learning how to share power uh, with stakeholders who are actually, uh, who you intend to sort of impact their lives. So understanding how to pitch a larger tent and think about the distribution of power and decision-making in new and different ways. I could see how that would bump up against someone whose history has been driving forward. And in part, success is based on not listening to people that aim to hold you back, slow you down, the naysayers, you know. And that great entrepreneurial gut, Kelly, that so many entrepreneurs have well-honed muscles around, like, I have a, a sense of what we could do here. And I know how to garner the energy and the people and create the system that might allow us to, to work on something, to to solve a problem, um, to create a product that the market would bear. The only challenge is, is that we're working on social issues rather than market-based issues. And so with social issues, I think it requires a social response. So we're working on human issues as human beings with other humans. And that is a slower and more cumbersome issue. One of the things I read recently is that sometimes people, when they do become very enthusiastic about philanthropy and driving social change, and it doesn't happen as quickly as they might like, or they don't get the results that they were hoping for, they become discouraged and disillusioned and mm. start to scale back. I think you're right. Yes. And I think in many ways, I think that is the reason why connecting with people who have the lived experience of the change we are looking to see helps sort of shift perspectives, timelines, understanding what's reasonable. Like one of the things that I think we're trying to help funders understand is how to connect and learn from experts, people who are boots on the ground from a lived experience or from a from a um, nonprofit professional experience. What do they know? How have they seen? What has worked? What doesn't work and why? Sort of the learning and question, the front end discovery process is so much bigger. People are so quick to want outcomes. <laughs> um, we are impatient investors in social change. And I think um, good questions Hard, the hard skills of listening are so undervalued. I'm curious, not everyone does give. I mean, the, I read something the other day, 88% of households making between two and five million give. So that's a very high ratio. But you know, there's, there's some people that don't, and uh, there could be a variety of reasons. But if someone's listening to this podcast, and they are in a financial position to give in a meaningful way, and they just haven't done it yet, for whatever reason, what do you say to them about the potential that philanthropy can offer? There's no perfect way to approach philanthropy. Human beings and human systems are messy. So if you are ready to get messy, come on in because we got plenty of it in philanthropy. And it's complex. It's not linear. Um, it is not a science. It is an art. But you have something to offer with your with your feet you want to make a change with, go hold a sign for something you believe that that you believe in that matters. Um, we live in a democracy here in America. We have the ability to vote for social change in terms of our representative government. We also have the ability to take dollars that we don't need for ourselves and move them to other people. We live in a society where your altruism can go so far. But grow the muscle. Start somewhere. But let's take somebody who's got a lot of money. Let's say they've had a liquidity event or they have more money than they will spend in their lifetime. Yeah. And they're starting to think about philanthropy in a bigger way. I, lo I look at my husband and myself. I have a long practice of giving and now the dollars, the opportunity that we have is greater. Yeah. 
but we do want to be good at it. And we want to give, we see it as investment. We want to give to organizations that are going to do good things with our dollars where there's a great multiplier effect. Mm -hmm. it's, it's not easy. So the thing that I would say to you, if you're my client, is that you, you sound like so many folks in that you are suffering at the, the paralysis of the possibility. You know, there are 6 million not NGOs worldwide. Not a lot of them are doing bad work. So how do you choose? You know, that's just organizations. Then we could narrow the universe a little bit and we look at issues, right? So if we focus on the what's, the external elements, it can be so overwhelming, which is why we begin with identity. Who are you? What are your values? How do you use money today? What gets in your way? Uh, how do you think about information? How do you think about impact? Uh, how do you think about getting good advice and being in a relationship with others? I'd ask you about your current practices because you're doing it in other domains. Who are you today? What's your vision? If you were to think about the very last day that you walked on this earth, um, how would the world look different because you lived in it? Philanthropy can play a role in that. So if you can get clear on that demarcation line, the world looks like X because I lived in it. What are all the ways that you can begin tomorrow to begin to work on that? And if philanthropy is the place where I can help you, Kelly and husband, what we want to get clear on is what are those values? What are the issues that you're worried about? Um, and who are the organizations that you think are doing good work? How do we use those values that you can articulate and we can help you articulate to think about measuring or evaluating the kinds of nonprofits? So here's an example. We had a uh, next-gen woman who came to us in her 20s. Um, she was giving money away with her family, giving money on her own, but she was also being asked to sit on all these boards. And she couldn't figure out how to say no to any of them. When we did this values exercise, one of the values that was most important to her was effectiveness. Mm -hmm. And so what we were able to do is use that as the screen, just like we screen lots of different things. So we looked at all these boards that she was being asked to, to sit on and she, we said, okay, effectiveness matters to you. Rank these by the effectiveness, either in the outcomes, their effectiveness in terms of outcomes, or how effective you think they are organizationally. And with that ranking, she was able to make choices about how much time she had to offer and who the organizations that she was going to spend that with and how to say no with intention and purpose to the other organizations that were seeking her time, right? To say like, you know, efficacy really matters to me. And so this is, then this is how I see efficacy playing out um, in your organization. And so I'm going to spend my time here instead. I only have so much. That is how we counsel people to do this, to go from the inside out it is too hard to start with 6 million NGOs and figure it out. Uh, we haven't gone through a formal process of that, but I, I certainly feel like we uh, have our areas of focus, our issues. We have a few parameters that we would consider you know, as investment criteria, if you will, for giving. But the screening part can be challenged. Mm. And, and to use that example, she was on the boards of those organizations, so she had a front row seat to how effective they were. You get requests unsolicited, or you've got an area of interest that you pursue, and it's sometimes hard to assess. If I use the an investment analogy, which is kind of coming from the wealth management industry, you you could measure performance. You have investment criteria. Mm -hmm. 
I'm finding philanthropy a little more challenging from that respect. Well, let's use your your wealth management and what's analogous from a business perspective. If we think about like the level of intimacy that you can have, there's a whole arc in terms of an investment from an investor perspective. We could be a retail investor where I could have a stockbroker and then working for a wirehouse who's working with, let's say, an active manager. Um, and those active managers have people who are due dil- doing due diligence on the companies that they're making investments with. So many layers to get to, is this a good investment and what what do we actually know about it? You could also look at it from a private equity perspective, right? Somebody who is deeply in the culture, you know, is looking under the hood and smelling all the smells. Like these are different approaches and you get to choose what, where's your comfort level. Everybody does it differently and you're entitled to, but knowing yourself matters. I really like Danielle's investor analogy. What level of engagement do you want to have as a philanthropist? How involved do you want to be? How much work do you want to do yourself to identify smart philanthropic investments versus relying on advisors to help you make those decisions? I asked Danielle what she thinks the rest of us can learn from these huge donors who are giving literally hundreds of millions of dollars away each year. So what they what they can learn is that everybody makes mistakes. Um, you know, I think one of the things that I think some of the largest funders in this country right now are doing a really good job at it are telling the stories of the mistakes that they have made, mm. the money that has not bared fruit that they had intended, and really that they've taken the time to try to understand that. So I think, one, you're going to make mistakes. Not every dollar is going to have the impact that you intended, but you will learn from it if you choose to look at it and understand what it is that's going on, the, the, the attention to your actions matters rather than just, I gave it to you and you didn't make it happen, sort of transactional. And I think the other piece is being in relationship around change takes time. It's not just money. Uh, You can't just give money and hope that somebody else is going to do the work. If you want to be a part of the change, you have to be in relationship with the change. That's good advice. If I can turn the tables now and uh, maybe ask you questions about your own view of money. Sure. It's my favorite part of the, each episode. Danielle, how do you define wealth? Well-being. What's the most important money lesson that you want your children to know? Oh, there is such thing as enough. Mm. There's enough junk food. There is enough TV. There is enough. There is enough of everything that like abundance is actually the way that the world is. I think we live in a very abundant universe. It's a very abundant time uh, for my children in particular, who are super lucky um, because I've been super lucky. Um, so there is enough and, um, and scarcity doesn't have to drive all your decisions. Spending money, investing it, or giving it away, which is the most challenging for you? Oh, investing. Mm-hmm. I, I know I, I, my professional career has been working with professional investors. Um, you know, as I described the sort of private equity investor or the retail investor, I think that, you know, I've looked at both. My brain doesn't really work like that um, in terms of the way that investments are done in this country, which is um, very logic oriented. Um, and so what I have found and is that I rely on terrific advisors. So what I have, what I'm really skilled at is relationships and I have great instinct and I'm a good communicator. So I use my relationships to do my investing um, rather than doing it myself. And, you know, I think that those are undervalued 
investing skills, actually. Mm. I think so too. Maybe only because those are my skills too, and I'm not good at the other either. So <laughs> we're on the same page. Yes. Yeah. Right. Lastly, if you'll finish the sentence, money is a wonderful and powerful tool that can be used for good and tremendous change um, with good intention. And I think when, when not used carefully or with intention, can cause harm and create. Um, can have lots of unintended consequences, can, can create something terrible. So it's like water. Uh, you know, when we see a big natural disaster and we see the power of water and we also can play in water and we drink water, it's like that. And I don't know, it's like sex. It's like all the big things that hold all the power. There are two sides to the coin. Serious coin podcast woman, I don't need to tell you that, but there's two sides to that coin. And I think both matter and we have to look at both. Thanks for listening, everyone. I hope you enjoyed that. And I want to thank Danielle for being my guest and for giving us some new ways to think about philanthropy and for reminding us that we can draw on the skills and values and gifts that we have always had, but in a new way. And also to recognize that we're not going to get it right the first time or every time, no matter how much money or experience we have. If you want to dig a little deeper into this topic, you can find lots of great resources at 2164's website. They've got programs like a workshop on clarifying your philanthropic identity, and that runs next spring. There's also the Gen Impact program that Danielle mentioned, and that's designed to give you practical steps to become more strategic in your philanthropy. Just go to their website, 2164.net, to find out more. And if you enjoyed the content, please leave us a rating or a review. We so appreciate it. And again, Thanks for listening to Serious Coin. Serious Coin podcast is provided for your general interest only, and nothing we discuss should be taken as investment, tax, legal, or other professional advice. Always talk to a licensed professional before you take any financial decisions.